This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, August 15th, 2017, episode 43, concerning the resurrection of cannibals. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Before we start, uh, just a quick preface. This episode is rather heavily front-loaded. That is, there's an unusually lengthy amount of commentary before we get to the text, uh, and somewhat less afterwards. So if it seems like the text is never coming, just hang in there. Or not. Because this is also a chance to mention a relatively new feature— As of episode 40, the podcast has been released with chapter breaks included. Now, they don't work on all devices or in all playback applications. Uh, The MP3 file standard isn't actually made for chapter markers, but they can be implemented using unofficial metadata workarounds, uh, but only some software recognizes those. So the chapters don't work on my own iPod Classic that I still use for most of my podcast consumption, But they should work on uh, the iPhone podcast app and on at least some Android podcaster apps. I know they work on Podcast Addict, which is uh, one app I recommend. In some players, I've had uh, issues with the chapter marks being off by a few seconds from where I've told them to start. But they should still get you pretty close to the start of a section in the episode. So if you want to skip straight to the text, you can. If you want to skip straight to the second commentary, you can. If you want to skip straight to the riddle uh, or mystery word, you can. Um, Okay, so chapters. They're kind of here now. Uh, And with that, let's get on with the show. Today's text is kind of an offshoot of our look at opinions on the incorruptibility of St. Cuthbert. I came to it via the article by Carolyn Walker Bynum that I used in the second Cuthbert episode. That article uh, was entitled Material Continuity, Personal Survival, and the Resurrection of the Body, a Scholastic Discussion in its Medieval and Modern Contexts, And that title provides a pretty good abstract of the content of the article. Bynum is looking at uh, medieval Christian beliefs about resurrection, uh, namely the final resurrection of all human beings at the Last Judgment. Her investigation is driven by the debates about resurrection that emerge in scholastic disputations, where we see eminent theologians wrestling with apparent paradoxes involved in the doctrine of resurrection, arguments which stand alongside the infamous how-many-angels-can-dance-on-the-head-of-a-pin question as examples of the, uh, to modernize at least, torturous twistings to which reason was put uh, in these scholastic debates. Bynum's goal is partly to rehabilitate the image of the scholastics and partly to more clearly trace out the underlying threads and contrasts that run through high-level theological discourse on the one hand and popular culture and common belief on the other. The main uniting thread she finds, as suggested by the title, is an emphasis, both high and low, on material continuity, a fundamental feeling that if your resurrected body isn't made up of the same, or at least mostly the same, matter that it possessed while living, then it can't really be you. The resurrected body must be reconstituted in some way from your original parts, or even particles as the case may be. If it were just created anew, out of all new material, then... That wouldn't really be resurrection, per se, and it wouldn't really be you, in some core sense. Bynum's rehabilitation of the scholastic debates on this point is rooted in showing that we still have these same concerns about material continuity of the self, and we still use similar kinds of heightened, even absurd thought experiments to test the extent of these beliefs, just like the medieval scholastics were doing. One of the best and best-known examples of these is the philosophical dilemma posed by the Star Trek transporter. If the transporter essentially evaporates the atoms that make you up at the starting point, and then constructs you out of all new local matter at the destination, then have you been teleported, or have you been disintegrated and killed, and a copy of you produced at the destination? If the people around you can't tell the difference, and if the new you itself can't tell the difference, then is there a difference? It's a crazy way to travel, spreading a man's molecules all over the universe. Now, I realize that hardcore Star Trek lore specifically has answered this question, with the matter stream and so forth, so that your atoms are transformed into energy-slash-information 
transmitted to the destination and then converted back into matter. Uh, Thus, you are still your original atoms, and material continuity is preserved. But outside of Star Trek canon, uh, the idea of duplication and memory transferal and similar science fiction scenarios still raise this question of how much of you is your own matter, your original hardware, and how much is the software of your mind. And general knee-jerk opinion does still seem to insist upon the importance of material continuity, that a newly created you isn't really you if it doesn't have some direct physical link to the original you. Without that, it's just a copy of you, fundamentally other to the real, original you, and all those terms could be in scare quotes. Certainly, I've met people who are perfectly sanguine about the idea of uploading their consciousness into a computer and killing their body and organic brain, uh, and who see that as still personal survival, but these people remain a minority. Anyway, the point is not to rehash that debate, uh, but just to recognize that we are still having these debates about what constitutes your individual self and identity and authenticity, and we still reach to fantastical examples to test the ideas of those debates and the limits of our beliefs. Today's text is an example of one of these scholastic thought experiments that's singled out by Bynum in her article. This is Thomas Aquinas' attempt to answer the question, whether whatever in the body belonging to the truth of human nature will rise again in it. Or, in other words, when the human body is resurrected, what exactly gets resurrected, and where does it come from? This question leads into a discussion of a particularly extreme scenario to test its principles, involving what happens to the flesh of a cannibal who gets resurrected. Does it get resurrected with the cannibal, or does it have to go back to the person whom the cannibal ate? And if the latter case, then what is the cannibal's resurrected body going to be made of if its original matter has all been parceled out to his or her victims? Oh, and just a quick doctrinal clarification, if you're thinking of objecting that this doesn't matter because a cannibal is clearly going to hell, so he or she isn't going to be resurrected anyway, uh, well, the Catholic doctrine, at least, is that all human beings will be resurrected bodily at the Last Judgment, and being judged will then be sent to eternal suffering or eternal reward. Sinfulness is no obstacle to resurrection. So this is a discussion of cannibalism that sets aside as irrelevant any moral judgments about cannibalism. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Roasting children. Call it a weakness. So let's get ready to dive into Thomas. Uh, Today's text is from the supplement to Thomas's Summa Theologiae, written between 1265 and Thomas's death in 1274 the supplement being a compilation of some of the unfinished parts of part three of the Summa that he was still working on when he died. The purpose of the Summa is to lay out and justify by arguments all the core tenets of Christianity. Thomas intended it as a kind of guide suitable for beginning theology students. But imagine if your textbook for an intro class was over 3,000 pages long. Uh, And now imagine what a modern textbook publisher would charge you for that book. Actually, don't try to imagine that. Uh, I don't need any of you to have a heart attack or go into shock. This isn't going to be the easiest text to do as audio. Uh, The Summa may have been written for students, but it sure doesn't seem to me that it was written with oral performance in mind, which is a bit curious because it's firmly rooted in a deeply oral genre, the schoolroom disputatio, a classical philosophical mode that really blossomed and took formal shape in the medieval universities. Disputatio, or disputation, was a structured debate on a subject or premise or question involving arguments for and against propositions, sometimes grounded in logic and empirical evidence, but also frequently justified by appeal to scriptural or classical authorities, um, or usually a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. As it evolves beyond the context of a classroom debate, uh, it takes on the many elements of classical logic, like major premises and minor premises, warrants, and all those kinds of things that you might still encounter in some first-year composition classes or classical philosophy or logic courses. But its most characteristic feature, I think its core feature, is the presentation of objections and counterarguments to your position, and then a structured rebuttal to each of those positions. I have a lot of affection for the scholastic method. I first bumped into Thomas's Summa as an undergrad, maybe even as a freshman, 
And I thought it was just the greatest way of laying out an argument, which is not to say that I was particularly persuaded by Thomas's arguments. Uh, though that said, I think he often is much more compelling and persuasive than he is in today's particular selection. Uh, it maybe does him a bit of a disservice to highlight his contortions around a particularly hypothetical issue. Um, he's much better when he's offering interpretations of more practical doctrinal matters. Um, I find, for example, his discussion of what kind of wine and bread should be acceptable for use in the Eucharist uh, to be an especially level-headed discussion, considering it's a subject that is fundamentally mystical in nature. Uh, so anyway, I wasn't sold on Thomas's cosmology, um, but I loved the format, this highly schematic working through of arguments and objections. Um, it's even a format that maybe has had a kind of unwitting comeback in internet discussions, what with articles that construct response arguments by rebutting a selection of tweets or forum posts or other snippets from other people's arguments and integrating those into its own uh, text structure. But this format poses a problem for performance, since it's laid out in a way that works well on the page, where you can flip back to look at earlier sections. For example, Thomas starts with a question, then lists the objections, or alternative interpretations, uh, that he will go on to refute. Then he states his answer to the question, sometimes at length. Then he goes in and provides rebuttals, one by one, for the earlier stated objections. But he doesn't restate what the objections were. You have to go back to the beginning to remind yourself what they were. They're just in a numbered list. So to help us out, I'm going to insert brief reminders of what the objections were before uh, presenting each rebuttal. Another tricky point is that Thomas is dealing in some core concepts of Aristotelian philosophy as filtered through both Christian and Muslim scholars that are not particularly easy to follow if you're not up on your Plato and Aristotle. And frankly, even if you are, the English translation isn't always helpful in keeping things clear. To be honest, this facet of classical philosophy really makes my brain spin. I'm all up for ethics and debates about defining the good or the purpose of the state. I'm all up for rhetoric and discourse on the nature of effective communication. But questions of being and universal truth, especially when it gets muddled up with very pre-modern conceptions of physics and matter and energy, all of that's a real struggle for me. Um, and today we're dropping into the middle of material highly dependent on those very issues. So some points in today's text will probably be mystifying to you. Some of them remain mystifying to me, uh, but I'll try to fill in at least a couple of key terms that will help clarify what Thomas is getting at. Let's start with the question, quote, whether whatever in the body belonged to the truth of human nature will rise again in it. What does he mean by the truth of human nature? We've got two big concepts with a wide variety of applications yoked together under that phrase, so truth and nature. But I think we can get by for today uh, with just taking this phrase as signifying whatever we would recognize as a human being. And in this specific discussion, we can go a step further and limit this to what constitutes an individual human being. Aristotelian philosophy wrestles with the distinction of what belongs to the perfect embodiment of an individual versus what belongs to a universal definition of the human species. Uh, and it's a distinction not always clearly made. Uh, but for Thomas's discussion, the truth of human nature he's examining is that property that makes you, you, that defines the boundaries between what belongs to or is part of you and what isn't. A related term we should define right here is species. We commonly use species in a pretty specific biological sense today, and it can seem like Thomas is using it in the same way when he refers to things like the human species. Uh, but Thomas is using this in the Aristotelian sense, where species uh, simply means a specific category of matter or creature or phenomenon. Uh, so that he can say, for example, that a burning flame maintains its species of fire so long as it burns. It conforms to a archetype or ideal of fireness. How you define what is part of you and what isn't feeds straight into the debate among natural philosophers about digestion and growth. How does the food you eat get turned into you, the material of your body? Why does only some of it get turned into you and some of it get, well, pooped out? The idea of one substance changing into another was philosophically problematic, especially since in a Platonic or Aristotelian world, everything is seen as tending towards perfection, and perfection involves purity and immutability and unchangeability, 
And so the idea that the flesh of an animal could somehow be added into your own human flesh did not sit well with such a conception of perfection. Some went so far as to reject digestion completely. They proposed that food is not incorporated into our flesh. Instead, the body burns the food strictly to produce energy, as we would burn oil or wood, reducing it to fecal ash, and bodily growth comes from our flesh reproducing itself. Uh, We just grow all by ourselves, like plants do, or appear to do. Uh, New mass just emerging out of the existing mass of human matter. Others look empirically at the world and notice that if someone is starving, they lose mass, they lose fat and flesh. And so the intake of food matter clearly relates to the amount of matter your body possesses. But they also notice that you don't wither away into nothing. You don't evaporate like an ice cube. You lose some quantity of only certain kinds of flesh, and then you just outright die of starvation. Starvation may cause you to lose your gut, but never your hand. And likewise, eating again will restore your gut, but no amount of eating would cause you to regrow a hand that you've lost. Thus, two concepts develop, both of which are mentioned in today's text, which is why I'm defining them for you. Uh, These are the radical humor and the nutritive humor. The radical humor is that irreducible core of the human being, consisting of those parts that you possess from the time you are born and that can't be regrown if lost. On top of that core is the nutritive humor, which is a secondary class of human matter that derives from food and can wax and wane depending on the nutrition you receive. So the radical humor gets to retain that necessary purity of humanness, and only the nutritive humor has to be compromised with less than truly human matter by absorbing food into it. Thomas runs through both of these positions in his discussion and adds a third, which starts with the radical and nutritive model, but takes a further step away from this kind of Manichaean purity and allows that matter belongs to the radical or the nutritive not because of intrinsic qualities of the matter, i.e. that there's always a lineage of pure, true human matter passed along via the radical humor, and that in fact you could trace all the way back to Adam, but any old matter takes on the function of the radical or the nutritive humor just depending on where it winds up. As I said, Thomas does outline these three theories, uh, and he doesn't pick sides among them in answering the resurrection question, but instead provides responses according to each of these theories. Um, And so I hope you'll forgive me if it seems repetitive when we get into the text, um, but I think going in with a plainer English explanation will help uh, for following Thomas's language. But though in today's text, Thomas sort of floats all three theories as possibilities elsewhere in the Summa, namely uh, part one, question 119, article one, uh, the question, is any part of the food changed into true human nature? Thomas basically endorses uh, the third theory or a version of it, um, that what counts as matter belonging to true human nature is whatever matter serves the end of maintaining the human body, or that matter is human flesh when we see it functioning as human flesh, regardless of where it came from. And it can go on to be something else once it's no longer serving the function as human flesh. This also touches on a main element of Thomas's thought, which is that a human being is not just a collection of matter in a certain shape, but is, in essence, an idea manifested through matter, a platonic form embodied. And that's important for resurrection theology. The perfect, truest human being is not the soul alone. It is a soul embodied. The body's not just temporary clothing for the pure soul, which is discarded at death, but is definitional to humanness. A human soul without a body is not a human being. It is imperfect. It is incomplete. And thus the necessity of the resurrection into a perfect and eternal body at the end of days. Uh, At least I think that's pretty close to the general idea. Um, No doubt the philosophers among you could correct me on some points. Um, one other biological point I'll quickly footnote for you is Thomas's view of reproduction. He shares the common view of the natural philosophers he's building on that reproduction is androcentric. That is a man's seed contains the whole of the human being, just as a plant seed contains the embryonic plant and that the baby grows from this seed in the fertile ground of the woman's womb which imparts to it certain characteristics, which explains how children might otherwise mysteriously resemble their mothers. 
Um, but otherwise, humanity is a matter of paternal lineage. Now, what the matter of the father's seed is made from is another site for debate over the nature of radical and nutritive humors, uh, which Thomas touches on in today's discussion. Anyway, I hope that does sketch out the basic lay of the land for the problem of what matter comprises the resurrected body. One of the reasons for having this debate in the first place is the quotation from Luke that not a hair of your head shall perish. If you take that literally, does that mean that every bit of the hair you've grown over your entire lifetime will be restored to you from wherever it has fallen in the world? This then leads to similar debates about fingernail clippings and teeth and blood and what are the boundaries of you. It also leads to the issue of quantity, another Aristotelian term uh, I think we should clarify. The quantity, or the related concept of numerical identity, um, the quantity of an individual basically just means uh, all the matter that's necessary to be complete or whole. So you'll see Thomas assert that at your resurrection, you don't need all the hair you've grown to come back to you, or all the fat or flesh that you've gained or shed, but only enough to provide your perfect quantity, the requisite amount to constitute the most ideal form of you. But this still leaves the question of when does something cease to be part of you and become part of something else? And if that something else is actually a someone else who has also been promised that not a hair of their head shall perish, etc., etc., then you've got a conflict of ownership. And that's what Thomas is wrestling with here in question 80, article 4 of the supplement to his Summa Theologiae. I'll be reading from Father Lawrence Shapcott's translation as given in the second revised edition of his version from 1920. Article 4. Whether whatever in the body belong to the truth of human nature will rise again in it. Objection 1. It would seem that what was in the body belonging to the truth of human nature will not rise again in it, for food is changed into the truth of human nature. Now, sometimes the flesh of the ox or of other animals is taken as food. Therefore, if whatever belonged to the truth of human nature will rise again, the flesh of the ox, or of other animals, will also rise again, which is inadmissible. Objection 2. Further, Adam's rib belonged to the truth of human nature in him, as ours does in us. But Adam's rib will rise again not in Adam, but in Eve, else Eve would not rise again at all, since she was made from that rib. Therefore, whatever belonged in man to the truth of human nature will not all rise again in him. Objection 3. Further, it is impossible for the same thing from different men to rise again. Yet it is possible for something in different men to belong to the truth of human nature. For instance, if a man were to partake of human flesh, which would be changed into his substance. Therefore, there will not rise again in man whatever belonged in him to the truth of human nature. Objection 4. Further, if it be said that not all the flesh partaken of belongs to the truth of human nature, and that consequently some of it may possibly rise again in one man and some in the other, on the contrary, that which is derived from one's parents would especially seem to belong to the truth of human nature. But if one who partook of nothing but human flesh were to beget children, that which his child derives from him must needs be of the flesh of other men partaken of by his father, since the seed is from the surplus of food, as the philosopher proves. Therefore, what belongs to the truth of human nature in that child belonged also to the truth of human nature in other men of whose flesh his father had partaken. Objection 5. Further, if it be said that what was changed into seed was not that which belonged to the truth of human nature in the flesh of the men eaten, but something not belonging to the truth of human nature, on the contrary, let us suppose that someone is fed entirely on embryos, in which seemingly there is nothing but what belongs to the truth of human nature, since whatever is in them is derived from the parents. If then the surplus food be changed into seed, that which belonged to the truth of human nature in the embryos, and after these have received a rational soul, the resurrection applies to them, 
must needs belong to the truth of human nature in the child begotten of that seed. And thus, since the same cannot rise again in two subjects, it will be impossible for whatever belonged to the truth of human nature in both to rise again in both of them. On the contrary, whatever belonged to the truth of human nature was perfected by the rational soul. Now it is through being perfected by the rational soul that the human body is directed to the resurrection. Therefore, whatever belonged to the truth of human nature will rise again in each one. Further, if anything belonging to the truth of human nature in a man be taken from his body, this will not be the perfect body of a man. Now all imperfection of a man will be removed at the resurrection, especially in the elect to whom it was promised, that not a hair of their head should perish. Therefore, whatever belonged to the truth of human nature in a man will rise again in him. I answer that everything is related to truth in the same way as to being, because a thing is true when it is as it appears to him who actually knows it. For this reason, Avicenna says that the truth of anything is a property of the being immutably attached thereto. Accordingly, a thing is said to belong to the truth of human nature because it belongs properly to the being of human nature. And this is what shares the form of human nature, just as true gold is what has the true form of gold, whence gold derives its proper being. In order, therefore, to see what it is that belongs to the truth of human nature, we must observe that there have been three opinions on the question. For some have maintained that nothing begins anew to belong to the truth of human nature, and that whatever belongs to the truth of human nature, all of it belonged to the truth of human nature when this was created, and that this multiplies by itself, so that it is possible for the seed, whereof the child is begotten, to be detached therefrom by the begetter, and that again the detached part multiplies in the child, so that he reaches perfect quantity by growth, and so on, and that thus was the whole human race multiplied. Wherefore, according to this opinion, whatever is produced by nourishment, although it seems to have the appearance of flesh and blood, does not belong to the truth of human nature. Others held that something new is added to the truth of human nature by the natural transformation of the food into the human body, if we consider the truth of human nature in the species to the preservation of which the act of the generative power is directed, but that if we consider the truth of human nature in the individual to the preservation and perfection of which the act of the nutritive power is directed, that which is added by food belongs to the truth of human nature of the individual, not primarily, but secondarily. For they assert that the truth of human nature first and foremost consists in the radical humor, that namely which is begotten of the seed of which the human race was originally fashioned, and that what is changed from food into true flesh and blood does not belong principally to the truth of human nature in this particular individual, but secondarily, and that nevertheless this can belong principally to the truth of human nature in another individual who is begotten of the seed of the former. For they assert that seed is the surplus from food, either mingled with something belonging principally to the truth of human nature in the begetter, according to some, or without any such admixture, as others maintain. And thus the nutrimental humor in one becomes the radical humor in another. The third opinion is that something new begins to belong principally to the truth of human nature even in this individual, because distinction in the human body does not require that any signate material part must needs remain throughout the whole lifetime, any signate part one may take is indifferent to this, whereas it remains always as regards what belongs to the species in it, albeit as regards what is material therein, it may ebb and flow. And thus the nutrimental humor is not distinct from the radical on part of its principle, so that it be called radical when begotten of the seed, and nutrimental when produced by the food, but rather on the part of the term, so that it be called radical when it reaches the term of generation by the act of the generative, or even nutritive power, but nutrimental when it has not yet reached this term, but is still on the way to give nourishment. These three opinions have been more fully exposed and examined in the second book. Wherefore, there is no need for repetition here, except insofar as the question at issue is concerned. It must accordingly be observed that this question requires different answers according to these opinions. 
For the first opinion, on account of its explanation of the process of multiplication, is able to admit perfection of the truth of human nature both as regards the number of individuals and as regards the due quantity of each individual without taking into account that which is produced from food. For this is not added except for the purpose of resisting the destruction that might result from the action of natural heat, as lead is added to silver, lest it be destroyed in melting. Wherefore, since at the resurrection it behooves human nature to be restored to its perfection, nor does the natural heat tend to destroy the natural humor, there will be no need for anything resulting from food to rise again in man, but that alone will rise again which belong to the truth of the human nature of the individual, and this reaches the aforesaid perfection in number and quantity by being detached and multiplied. The second opinion, since it maintains that what is produced from food is needed for the perfection of quantity in the individual, and for the multiplication that results from generation, must needs admit that something of this product from food shall rise again. Not all, however, but only so much is required for the perfect restoration of human nature in all its individuals. Hence this opinion asserts that all that was in the substance of the seed will rise again in this man who was begotten of this seed, because this belongs chiefly to the truth of human nature in him. While of that which afterwards he derives from nourishment, only so much will rise again in him as is needed for the perfection of his quantity, and not all, because this does not belong to the perfection of human nature, except insofar as nature requires it for the perfection of quantity. Since, however, this nutrimental humor is subject to ebb and flow, the restoration will be effected in this order, that what first belonged to the substance of a man's body will all be restored, and of that which was added secondly, thirdly, and so on, as much as is required to restore quantity. This is proved by two reasons. First, because that which was added was intended to restore what was wasted at first, and thus it does not belong principally to the truth of human nature to the same extent as that which came first. Secondly, because the addition of extraneous humor to the first radical humors results in the whole mixture not sharing the truth of the specific nature as perfectly as the first did. And the philosopher instances as an example the mixing of water with wine, which always weakens the strength of the wine so that in the end the wine becomes watery so that although the second water be drawn into the species of wine, it does not share the species of wine as perfectly as the first water added to the wine. Even so, that which is secondly changed from food into flesh does not so perfectly attain to the species of flesh as that which was changed first, and consequently does not belong in the same degree to the truth of human nature, nor to the resurrection. Accordingly, it is clear that this opinion maintains that the whole of what belongs to the truth of human nature principally will rise again, but not the whole of what belongs to the truth of human nature secondarily. The third opinion differs somewhat from the second, and in some respects agrees with it. It differs in that it maintains that whatever is under the form of flesh and bone all belongs to the truth of human nature because this opinion does not distinguish as remaining in man during his whole lifetime any signate matter that belongs essentially and primarily to the truth of human nature, besides something ebbing and flowing that belongs to the truth of human nature merely on account of the perfection of quantity and not on account of the primary being of the species, as the second opinion asserted. But it states that all the parts that are not beside the intention of the nature generated belong to the truth of human nature, as regards what they have of the species, since thus they remain, but not as regards what they have of matter, since thus they are indifferent to ebb and flow, so that we are to understand that the same thing happens in the parts of one man as in the whole population of a city, for each individual is cut off from the population by death, while others take their place. Wherefore, the parts of the people flow back and forth materially, but remain formally since these occupy the very same offices and positions from which the former were withdrawn, so that the commonwealth is said to remain the self-same. In like manner, while certain parts are on the ebb and others are being restored to the same shape and position, all the parts flow back and forth as to their matter, but remain as to their species, and nevertheless the self-same man remains. On the other hand, the third opinion agrees with the second, because it holds that the parts which come secondly do not reach the perfection of the species so perfectly as those which come first, and consequently the third opinion asserts that the same thing rises again in man as the second opinion maintains, 
but not for quite the same reason. For it holds that the whole of what is produced from the seed will rise again, not because it belongs to the truth of human nature otherwise than that which comes after, but because it shares the truth of human nature more perfectly. Which same order the second opinion applied to those things that are produced afterwards from food, in which point also these two opinions agree. Reply to Objection 1, which claims that it would be unacceptable for the flesh of animals consumed by a human to be resurrected in that human because animals don't partake in the resurrection. A natural thing is what it is, not from its matter, but from its form. Wherefore, although that part of matter which at one time was under the form of bovine flesh rises again in man under the form of human flesh, it does not follow that the flesh of an ox rises again, but the flesh of a man else one might conclude that the clay from which Adam's body was fashioned shall rise again. The second opinion, however, grants this argument. Reply to Objection 2, which claims that Eve could not rise again because all of her derived from the rib that must be restored to a resurrected Adam. That rib did not belong to the perfection of the individual in Adam, but was directed to the multiplication of the species. Hence, it will not rise again in Adam, but in Eve, just as the seed will rise again, not in the begetter, but in the begotten. Reply to Objection 3, which claims that flesh consumed by a cannibal cannot rise again in both the cannibal and the one eaten at the same time, and thus one or the other would not be able to achieve a perfect resurrection. According to the first opinion, it is easy to reply to this argument, because the flesh that is eaten never belonged to the truth of human nature in the eater, but it did belong to the truth of human nature in him whose flesh was eaten, and thus it will rise again in the latter, but not in the former. According to the second and third opinions, each one will rise again in that wherein he approached nearest to the perfect participation of the virtue of the species, and if he approached equally in both, he will rise again in that wherein he was first, because in that he first was directed to the resurrection by union with the rational soul of that man. Hence, if there were any surplus in the flesh eaten, not belonging to the truth of human nature in the first man, it will be possible for it to rise again in the second. Otherwise, what belonged to the resurrection in the first will rise again in him and not in the second. But in the second, its place is taken either by something of that which was the product from other food, or if he never partook of any other food than human flesh, the substitution is made by divine power, so far as the perfection of quantity requires as it does in those who die before the perfect age. Nor does this derogate from numerical identity, as neither does the ebb and flow of parts. Reply to Objection 4, which claims that the children of a cannibal must be made entirely of the flesh of the people eaten, and thus have no part which could rise in them that is not already belonging to the person eaten. According to the first opinion, this argument is easily answered for that opinion asserts that the seed is not from the surplus food, so that the flesh eaten is not changed into the seed whereof the child is begotten. But according to the other two opinions, we must reply that it is impossible for the whole of the flesh eaten to be changed into seed, because it is after much separation that the seed is distilled from the food, since seed is the ultimate surplus of food. The part of the eaten flesh, which is changed into seed, belongs to the truth of human nature in the one born of the seed more than in the one whose flesh the seed was the product. Hence, according to the rule already laid down in reply to objection 3, whatever was changed into seed will rise again in the person born of the seed, while the remaining matter will rise again in him of whose flesh the seed was the product. Reply to objection 5 which tries to close one last loophole by proposing a cannibal that from birth has eaten nothing but embryos which themselves have never consumed non-human food and thus can consist of nothing but pure human nature so that there's no margin of non-human food that could be appropriated to the being of one or the other. The embryo is not concerned with the resurrection before it is animated by a rational soul, in which state much has been added to the seminal substance from the substance of food since the child is nourished in the mother's womb. Consequently, on the supposition that a man partook of such food, and that someone were begotten of the surplus thereof, 
that which was in the seminal substance will indeed rise again in the one begotten of that seed, unless it contains something that would have belonged to the seminal substance in those from whose flesh being eaten the seed was produced. For this would rise again in the first, but not in the second. The remainder of the eaten flesh, not being changed into seed, will clearly rise again in the first, the divine power supplying deficiencies in both. The first opinion is not troubled by this objection, since it does not hold the seed to be from the surplus food. But there are many other reasons against it, as may be seen in the second book. So that's how cannibals fed exclusively on a diet of human embryos will be resurrected. Clear as mud, yes? The keen-eyed among you might notice that for all of Thomas's extended rationalizations and flowcharts for which individuals have priority claim to certain classes of matter and all the other complications he traces out, in the end, Thomas's answer to the paradox is, hey, if there's a paradox, God will fix it with a miracle. You know, divine power will make up for any deficiencies. Bynum also points out that this whole discussion is rather odd, since in the broader body of Thomas's work, he advances that sort of third theory of digestion case, basically saying that where the body's matter comes from doesn't really matter, and that God could provide your soul with a body made of entirely different matter, and it would be your body because it belongs to your soul, and as a kind of last recourse to objections, because God can just make it your body because he sets the rules. So why go through all this rigmarole over which ancestor gets first claim to those particular molecules that once belonged to them but now make up part of your left kidney? Bynum's answer is that despite his more abstract philosophical conclusions, Thomas is still enmeshed in a culture where popular sentiment remains very strongly in favor of material continuity, which reinforces the importance of continuity in how it treats relics, how it respects the burial of the dead, uh, and in innumerable other ways. So he still feels compelled to accommodate that belief in his account as far as possible uh, without fundamentally contradicting himself. If you're going to murder me, I'd appreciate a quick dine. I'm not getting hit by the pigs in case there is resurrection of the flesh. To turn to a somewhat different topic, uh, I had this episode slated to do since I finished up the Cuthbert series earlier in the summer, so it's pure coincidence that I started recording it just shortly after the passing of director George Romero, uh, who can be credited with making cannibalistic resurrection a major theme in modern pop culture, um, albeit with a sort of reversed polarity from what Thomas was describing. Since I gave a segment to honor Wes Craven upon his death back in episode 16, it seems proper to fly my horror fan flag again and recognize Romero, especially given the serendipity of this episode's topic. Romero is credited as the father of the modern zombie apocalypse genre, which is accurate, uh, though as many a horror critic website will be happy to inform you, Romero himself originally called his flesh-eating walking corpses in Night of the Living Dead not zombies, which at the time were creatures of Haitian folklore, um, or indeed within a certain definition of Haitian history, uh, but rather Romero called his creatures ghouls, which is also etymologically a borrowing from a non-European culture's folklore. English ghoul is an adaptation of the Arabic word ghoul, G-H-U-L, and I'm guessing how to pronounce that because, frankly, the internet was terribly unhelpful uh, since it's apparently completely consumed by discussions of how to pronounce the names of certain Batman villains. Um, but the Arabic ghoul is a demon or evil spirit that eats dead human bodies, uh, and sometimes not-so-dead ones, uh, and is associated with burial grounds or lonely places in wastelands. The word only enters English in the late 18th century, and fairly quickly loses the specificity of the Middle Eastern mythology, and becomes, in broad strokes, a word for a cannibal or a grave robber or monsters that engage in those kinds of activities. On the one hand, this watered-down English ghoul is a better fit than the word zombie for the living dead of Romero's film and for most of the zombies that came in its wake. Though that said, it's a little bit of six of one, half a dozen of the other. The cannibalism and insatiable hunger that are key characteristics of the modern zombie 
are much more ghoulish than they are Haitian zombie. But on the other hand, the mindlessness, the lack of agency, and the reanimated component uh, are actually closer to the Haitian lore than the demonic spirits of Arabian myth that could be shapeshifters uh, and siren-like figures luring travelers to their doom, etc., etc. Um, so the modern zombie is a great mythological mishmash. To be honest, I'm not a huge zombie fan as far as my horror fandom goes. Uh, the place I mainly indulge in zombie consumption, so to speak, uh, is actually video games, where a zombie apocalypse provides a fun environment to run around in, sometimes being the hunter, sometimes being the prey. I haven't yet gotten tired of zombie games, um, but I am a bit tired of zombie stories. Uh, but I think that's mostly a rant for another time. Instead, I'll just offer one other personal opinion, uh, which is that one of the things I like about Romero's ghouls is that he deliberately withholds any clear explanation of what's causing them to reanimate. Uh, yes, there's a line about the Venus space probe coming back to Earth emitting strange radiation, but within the world of the movie, that's just one theory offered by a desperate military and is never confirmed. But even if we assume that the zombies, sorry, ghouls, are reanimated by space radiation, you know, that might as well be magic. It's superficially science fiction, but functionally supernatural. But I like this idea mainly in contrast to the modern conceit of zombieism, which is that it's caused by an infection. Outside of the context of 28 Days Later, where zombies are very specifically not reanimated corpses, but living people infected with a kind of super rabies, um, or maybe things like the Resident Evil series, where zombies are basically mutants rather than undead creatures. Uh, anyway, outside of a fairly small subset, most zombies are rotting corpses with no obvious metabolism, and so the whole infection premise is biological nonsense. Um, and it only seems to exist because modern creators are, for some reason, uncomfortable with acknowledging any kind of supernatural cause. Um, see also the late 20th or early 21st century werewolf. I know biological plausibility is a silly thing to object to in the context of horror movies, uh, so even setting that aside, I also just don't care for the metaphor of infection. Implicit in that setup is the idea that if only one could remain pure enough and uncontaminated, one could be fine, and one could create a safe society behind sufficiently strong walls. You don't have to think too hard about the political ramifications of that sort of ideology to see how it's troubling. Contrast that with Romero's Living Dead, where every corpse is destined to reanimate. I know the whole getting bitten thing is there in the later films, um, but I'll assert that, while I can see how it's confusing, uh, that's not about the bite turning you into a zombie but just that a zombie's bite is very toxic. It's full of the bacteria from a rotting corpse, after all, and that leads to fever, illness, and a rather rapid death. And then you rise as a zombie because everyone who dies rises again as a zombie. Anyway, Romero's films engage our existential despair uh, facing the inevitability of death and broader entropy. They're about the triumph of death. Um, of course, they also engage in other social critiques in the wake of that despair and nihilism. Um, that's another topic. The zombie outbreak metaphor, the infection metaphor, is about our fear of contamination and of people we loved and trusted becoming our enemy. So you have one theme that's philosophical, whereas the other is just ideological. Okay, let's wrap up. Uh, Romero deserves a better eulogy than that, um, but there have been plenty of people that have provided amply in that department. We do have a mystery word to resolve. The word I gave you last episode was kakoboros, an ancient Greek word, uh, which would be kakovoros in a more modern Greek pronunciation, which gives a clearer hint as to its meaning. So we have two components here. First is kakos, a word meaning bad or negative in a kind of broad sense. It's the opposite of kalos, good, positive, beautiful. There are a lot of Greek words with a kako prefix, and they pretty much all refer to bad things, some of which are borrowed into English, like cacophony, a bad phonos or sound. I've also seen kakocracy showing up in a lot of Twitter feeds this year, a word meaning government by the bad, uh, or it also appears in its superlative form, kakistocracy, government by the worst. Wonder why that one's so popular. 
Our word applies the kako prefix to boros, which means eater, or one who eats. You've maybe encountered it in the word uroboros, which means tail eater, and refers to the symbol of the snake eating its own tail. The first letter of boros is beta, which, at least as I was taught for ancient Attic Greek, has a B sound, um, and I guess it's actually beta in Attic Greek, so somewhere in between the American beta and the British beta. Uh, but as you move into biblical Greek and modern Greek, it becomes more like an English V sound, so vita. So boros becomes voros, parallel to the Latin vor, and carnivore, omnivore, herbivore, etc. So a cacovore, or cacoboros, is one who eats bad food. And I can't think of a better term for someone who eats only a diet of human embryos than cacoboros. Um, attentive linguists, biologists, and med students might recognize that we also have another Greek stem that signifies eater and occurs more commonly in English terminology, and that would be phage, as in bacteriophage, or anthropophagy, the anthropological term for cannibalism. That just leaves us with a riddle to set up for next episode. Your riddle is, Now I shall tell you what you can scarce believe, though true it is, not foolish trickery, for once I gave my son a pleasing gift, a gift which none could ever give to me, since God on high withheld this glorious boon, in which all other men rejoice their hearts. Once again, Now I shall tell you what you can scarce believe, though true it is, not foolish trickery. For once I gave my son a pleasing gift, a gift which none could ever give to me, since God on high withheld this glorious boon, in which all other men rejoice their hearts. I'll be back with an answer and a new mystery word next episode. Until then, you can get more information, including references for this and every episode, at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also email thoughts, feedback, corrections, or whatever else you like to me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Or more publicly, you can engage with or just follow me on Twitter at MDT Podcast. That's letter M, letter D, letter T, podcast, all one word. If you're enjoying the show, it does do a great deal of good for us if you leave a positive rating, or better still, a nice review, on your podcast subscription service of choice. Um, or by utilizing simple word of mouth to mention us in tweets or retweets or links on other platforms. I know I really should set up a Facebook group for the show, for those of you who use Facebook more than Twitter, uh, but boy, I really hate Facebook. Um, but we'll see. I may just have to get over my distaste and put your needs ahead of mine. But I'll announce that if or when it happens. And as a last-minute note before I release this, we have one other quick RIP uh, for the legendary voice actress June Foray, who just passed away at the age of 99, and whose voice you heard earlier as Witch Hazel in the little Bugs Bunny clip I played. But until next time, keep your eyes peeled and your machetes handy because... They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now!